Welcome to the Good Old Blades Podcast. I am your host, Aaron LeBeer, and join me as we talk to other knife makers and craftsmen about anything and everything knives. Thank you for listening into another episode of the Good Old Blades Podcast. I am your host, Aaron LeVere, and I am joined by a super cool dude. Um, I, I, we were just talking before the podcast, but um, I also talked to Steve Schwartzer about this. Uh, uh, Tony Severio is a knife maker that uh, is a humongous uh, influence in the, the, the knife making craft because he's taken all of his experience and posted it on to YouTube. He has some really great videos out there. And when I was learning how to make, uh, dovetailed bolsters and to apply them correctly to my knives, um, I looked at Tony's video probably not long after he posted it about four years ago. And it's something that I'm actually known for and recognized for inside of my own knives. So, I've known Tony in the periphery and kind of followed him as a YouTube sensation and 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 his work as I see in publication and whatnot. But uh, it didn't really dawn on me until recently that I like that's the person that I should have on on the podcast. So, uh, Tony, it's an incredible pleasure to have you on and and get to talk about your life and everything. And uh, I just really appreciate you spending the time with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so I guess you know. I usually start out with uh, just asking uh, a little about history. Um, you know, I've I've seen all of like the, your social media and website type of stuff and whatnot, and I kind of want to pick into a little bit of that as we go along. But I'd really like, in your words, uh, if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you grew up and how knives played a role in that and what made you decide to get into uh, knife making. Sure. Sure. Well, I grew up in South Louisiana and some in Southern Mississippi, but I was born and raised here in South Louisiana around the Baton Rouge area, a um, little town called Denham Springs, um, kind of halfway in between the swamps and the woodlands, upper woodlands, what we call woodlands here. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, you know, doing a lot of hunting and fishing was a common thing. It was you know, I was raised in a pretty modest uh, family. You know, my my dad was a laborer and and um, a welder, and and uh, you know, we just you know worked hard, and it was it was we were a poor family, and uh, we we did things a poor folks' way, as people would say. We raised our gardens, and we raised our animals to, that we ate, and we hunted and fished, and we ate from the land, you know. So um, it was a uh, it was a great childhood. I enjoyed it. I have a brother and a sister, and had a lot of family around where I grew up, and uh, so I had a lot of not just my my siblings, but cousins and all that. We grew up together. We did a lot of camping, and uh, we had places to fish, you know, on the bayous. And uh, my dad always had a camp on the bayou. And um, we spent a lot of time there. I mean, uh, our summers and, and a lot of times in the winter, I mean, my dad would do off and on commercial fishing. And, and um, so we used knives a lot, to say the least. I mean, whether it was skinning game or fish or, or hogs and cows, you know, that we raised. Uh, rabbits, you name it, we raised it. And so knives were a big part 
of my life. And I, I mean, I had a knife in my hand at a very young age. Um, my dad would, would put it in our hands and we would help. So probably in my seven, eight years old, I was using a knife and learning how to use a knife. <clears throat> but it was a, it was a great childhood, great experience. Um, my grandfather was an outdoorsman and he was like a Tom Sawyer to me. And, and uh, matter of fact, has a, a, a story that kind of sidelines the Tom Sawyer story, but he was, uh, he was like a kid till he died. And he, uh, he just wanted to stay in the woods and, and he and I would go in the woods at, at after breakfast and not come home for a couple of days. We would just stay in the woods. We didn't have camp you know, equipment, anything like that. We would just sleep under the trees back in the swamp. And he taught me a lot about just basic uh, navigation at night in the woods and how to get out if you got lost and how to find your way using the stars and just different things like that. But um, he was a character. A lot of good times. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Um, In... The difference, uh, I think, between the, the hunting that I grew up around and then I, I moved to Texas when I was 18 um, is uh, th like the, the swamp experience of hunting is a completely different one than just just being out in on dry land and everything, especially with how you traverse it. Um, did you, um, in addition to like normal Louisiana game, did you do a lot of swamp hunting like for alligators and other things like that, too? Oh, yeah, we did, you know, a lot of, a part, you know, frogging and catching alligators and things like that was all part of it. I mean, so where I lived was, you know, not on the bayou, but just just a, a little few miles I'd be I could be on the bayou just down the road. And and just a few miles north of me, I could be in the upper lands of southern Mississippi. So uh, you, if you go north of New Orleans. Uh, and northwest, uh, just about 50 miles, that's where I'm at. So I was in that midpoint. So we got kind of like the best of both worlds, of both worlds of hunting and wildlife. You either had the extreme swamp or you know, the rolling hills, as we call them. And so you was, you know, hunting whitetail in the rolling hills and other game down in the swamp. But a lot of whitetail in the swamp. We just didn't hunt them a lot down there because it's it's – it's a whole kind of different kind of hunting uh, gear wise and access and everything else to, to deer hunt in, in, uh, in the water. You know, that's basically what you're hunting in. Uh, but uh, once you get out of the very wet land, I should say, you, um, it might be, you know, you'd have an occasional water would be in a little bit of whatever you're rabbit hunting and, and things like that. You'd be wearing waders or rubber boots, but run beagles and things like that. But um, in a lot of cases, there was no water. It just depends on the season and what's going on with the weather, you know. Um, and, and then there's some places where it's just nothing but water. But um, a, a lot of the hunting that I enjoyed was in the, the – uh, north of where I lived in, in uh, the rolling hills where, you know, I did a lot of game hunting, rabbit, squirrel, and deer, and that sort of thing. 
but most of the southern stuff was like you say we was it was it was more fishing and which included alligators and that sort of thing but we 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 ate everything that was on the bayou and and in the bayou <laughs> so uh, a lot of people would frown if I even mentioned some of the things we eat, like Nutria. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you know what that is. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever eaten Nutria before, but, you know, when it comes to frog frog legs and uh, alligator and stuff, it's just the other white meat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, That's yeah. That's what I, they say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I... Uh, those kind of foods, I've never really shied away from it. I spent a little bit of time uh, living in Louisiana um, when I was a kid. Um, I was about you know, 11 years old. And we were, we were just uh, out in Oakdale um, area outside of Alexandria. Yeah. And and I gained a, a deep appreciation for the, the, the types of food that come out of the Cajun culture. Um, and I... You know whether it's crawfish or um, etouffees or things like that. You know what, whatever type of um, seafoods and things that you can catch local and whatnot. I've always really appreciated that, and and I think that's one thing that actually really is endearing about the culture in Louisiana is that um, the the food and the terrain um, and the culture. Uh, music and everything like that are all just kind of like this big melting pot. It's like a, uh, the culture in Louisiana is like a good gumbo. Yeah, it is, man. And, and you, when you, you just mentioned something that I, I discuss a lot with people, um, back in, in my filmmaking days and, and working with a, a guy that was doing documentary here and, uh, talking about Cajun music and, the, and it's the same with Cajun food, whether you're in east, southeast Louisiana or southwest Louisiana or north Louisiana. So the music is, is totally different, in my opinion, from the southeast to the southwest. It's the same with food. For example, uh, the way a gumbo is prepared uh, in, in southeast is, is compared to uh, southwest as there's different ways, different ingredients. And of course I have a pretty extreme opinion about it, but I try to back it up with history and facts, you know, <laughs> and I've had some great uh, conversations with, with friends and folks from, from the other, uh, what I call across the pond, which is the Atchafalaya basin, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I've gotten uh, almost fist fights around people and, uh, and whether beans go in chili or not. So that seems to be the, yeah. tex the Texas argument. So I can understand yeah. the different foods, you know, and that's something that, um, like not every bit of Louisiana is swamp. There's lots of people who don't really understand, uh, the, the culture or layout or things. And to me, it's just always been real cool because, uh, what I learned uh, when I moved down to Texas is, is there's so many different microclimates, um, and it's it's no different in Louisiana because there's you know like everything in, near the ocean and then all the bayou and piney woods and everything like that too and you know, rolling hills it's like there's so many different flavors of Louisiana for everybody to have and that's why I make an, uh, an association with the culture in general because it, it is like um I became 
um, acquainted with Cajun style fiddling and whatnot because I was a fiddle player up in the Appalachians in Pennsylvania. And um, we, um, you know, we'd learn like a lot of traditional um, Appalachian uh, fiddle tunes and whatnot, but I also had a teacher that was from Nova Scotia and I had lived there for a little while too, uh, followed my dad for work. And, um, you know, the, the, the French influence um, in music from Canada and then um, how I got into uh, some of the music from Louisiana and whatnot is, is real interesting to me. But whether it's music, whether it's food, whether it's the history um, um, or the landscape, I, I, it's just, I mean, there's so much that you can pull from, uh, from Louisiana itself. And knives is no, is, is no exception to that. I mean, I've, I've seen some incredible knives um, come out of the uh, Louisiana people, and um, it it seems, whereas the footprint was maybe a little bit more scattered before, we see things like the Louisiana Knife Show. That um, I guess is, it'll be next week uh, when this is a uh, 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 actually published online. It'll be that weekend, uh, the ninth, the ninth, right? Um, but yes. there's some some incredible um, knife makers from the area uh, joining that, and their work is superb too. Right, right. Well, there's a lot of makers that have gone that were that were uh, very good i mean uh, that's no longer with us uh, and no longer making i mentioned one of them a while ago which is robert captapal him and his son randy and you had mike sanders and um, you had one that just passed away here a while back uh, uh master smith in west louisiana and I'm, I, I'm drawing a blank on his name but he was incredible um uh, you got J.W. Randall in Louisiana. He's a master smith that makes outstanding looking blades. And and uh, he's been here a long time making knives. But it's, um, you know, it's uh, like it's like the, the culture. It's a, it's a melting pot. And there has been some popularity with knives over the years. Of course, the TV show has caused a lot of that. But um, that's cool. It gets the word out. And um We've got some, you know, up and coming makers that are doing great work here, and and uh, it's good to see, very good to see. Yeah. So, what um, what did you do before you got into knives? I know that we've talked a little bit about um, you know, uh, film and movies and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, phase of your life and what what kind of got you into knife making specifically? Well, well, I, I started making knives. In, in around 1989. So it's been a very long time. I just, um, I did, I, I, I did a lot of, th- I like to do a lot of things. And um, of course I wasn't doing it full time, but I, I'm a, my background was an electrician. And, um, but I started as a welder under my father. And uh, when welding ran out uh, back during those days and, and uh, t- things were tough with the economy, uh, I had uh, young crumb grabbers to feed, and um, you know I just started working with electricians welding for them. And I, you know we work in chemical plants and refineries here. That's what I was doing. And um, so eventually I uh, I migrated over to the electrical field after going to some schooling and uh, working with the contractors I was working with to help me get into trade school and learned the craft and I became a journeyman electrician. And, uh, but during that time, um, you know, I always, I mean, I made my first knife from a, a file and, 
uh, and then, you know, I, I made a lot of more sharp pointy objects. And, you know, I started with a, a side grinder and some kind of uh, Sears four inch belt sanding thing, not made for knives, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's just very rudimentary knife making, if, you, if that's what you want to call it. And, but before that, you know, it was, it was focusing on my career as an electrician. I wasn't really ever focused on making knives for a living. I would just want to make them, make a better knife is the way I put it to myself. And, you know, I, I got off into the uh, filmmaking at an early age as well. So I was doing, you know, being interested in filmmaking and knife making basically at the same time. So both were my hobby and I started dabbling with short film. I'm, I'm talking about shooting on actual eight millimeter film. Uh, we didn't have, that was before we had video cameras and now we have digital cameras and things like that. And of course I could have never afford a 16 millimeter, which is a, quite a step above an eight. And, um, you know, so I, I started down that path making short films. And eventually, um, you know, years down the road, just kept upgrading equipment, learning more about the craft, meeting, uh, you know, people in the industry and, uh, you know, just kind of getting, making my way. And, and when we, once we got the internet, I found out more about knife making and I found out more about filmmaking <laughs> and made more connections and, and all that thing. So, um, you know, eventually, yeah, I wanted to, to delve off not just in the filmmaking, but in the acting as well. So, um, you know, eventually I got an agent and I've had uh, two or three different ones, but um, and I never was a good actor. And obviously I'm not in it, but um, no longer. I don't fool with the business anymore. But I, my youngest son's still active and um he's he's done very well with it but um as far as a filmmaker i mean i worked as a director a producer an editor a director of photography on several films over the years you know i mean i wrote and directed two full-length features <clears throat> but i worked as a dp on several films and uh producer and you know production assistants all the way down i mean i started out doing extra work for acting and uh you know when i first got my foot into the film world uh as far as i what i call the hollywood world uh not not just independent filmmaking uh, it's a whole different world let me put it to you that way um it, there's a lot of uh a lot of politics and which has a lot to do why i'm no longer in the business um plus i lost my butt on my film company but i'm not even gonna go into that um because we did we had a production company and we was doing commercials and um mostly commercials and you know internet commercials one of and then <clears throat> one of my features pretty much put us under and um that's that's the price you pay it's a very risky business and it's risky for for your investors it's risky for everybody because you just can't predict you know the outcome of a film i mean you take the uh you take the latest Indiana Jones, for example. Everybody that was a part of that project would tell you that it's going to make a killing. Well, it flopped. 
Um, so you, it, it's very hard to predict. And, um, you know, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how you, good your story, it's really all about how good your marketing is, and um, which is totally separate from acting. You have to market yourself and, and train. And uh, so I, I've had my foot in a lot of things. I've met a lot of great people along the way, a lot of famous people I've worked with and got to know and become friends with. And um, it's just, it's been a crazy ride. Let me put it to you that way. <laughs> uh, but the knife making is, is, was, was parallel in all of that at the same time. Um, I was, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. I, I can't be still. And uh, I just, a lot of things interest me. And, uh, you know, whether it's hunting, fishing, knife making, filmmaking, that, you know, my, my mother's an artist. And that's where I get a lot of that from. And my dad was an outdoorsman and a builder and he could do build anything, craftsman. So it's a combination of things, I guess, you know, in the, in the genes. Yeah, that's all. That's all incredibly fascinating. I mean, I, I I would say that there's not a lot of difference, I guess, with being in the film industry and knives in the sense of business, because there's a lot of risk uh, involved with knives, and you know, for for the like the highly successful or celebrity um, style of knife maker, right? But um, exactly. You know, it's 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 like make or break. You go to a show and spend a lot of money, and it could bust you, or you could uh, invest a lot of uh, money in materials or things like that. But you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of knife makers I know that are phenomenal knife makers that you would not know that they existed unless it was for some presence on social media, because. You know, there's not like the guild shows, um, uh, like the, the national guild shows anymore and things like that. It's like, uh, you know, there's one avenue that they kind of stuck to. And if you were outside of that world, you almost never see them. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I took a five-year break um, with my knife making. I think I made three knives in that, that break, and it was totally, uh, I was totally focused on my film business. And and um filmmaking and plus i was um at the same time i was busy i had an agent that had me on the road every day i may be flying to south carolina to audition and uh so i was i was so busy with that it was hard for me to really focus on on filmmaking uh, on knife making and so uh, eventually uh, you know i had to make a choice and of course uh, the the business made it for me when we, we lost our, our company. And um, I decided to just focus on knife making and, and make a living eventually. I went full time with this two years ago and I've been very blessed to say the least. And I haven't, uh, I mean, I've never had a table at Blade Show. I did shows here in South Louisiana back, back way back when and hadn't done shows in years. This will be the first show that I've done in many years. I've just built a clientele and, uh, you know, marketed myself, my knives, my work, and through social media. And like you, you know, the you've seen the videos. I, I believe that making videos, showing potential customers what goes into your knife, um, how you make it, and the work that goes into it is a big, big selling factor. 
and um, it's a little more it gives it lends a more a little more appreciation to to the maker and to what goes into the craft and to the product and you know it's it's kind of like i'm opening my shop and let you see and watch and this is how i do it and so i've haven't i haven't had to do any shows and um because i mean right now i'm booked out i'm booked out probably a year and i don't uh, advise anybody doing that because it has really caused me a lot of <laughs> headache <laughs> Um, I was warned not to do that. My good buddy Steve Schwarzer warned me not to do that. And um, I would really rather just make what I want to make and sell it because customize with a list is a pain, let me tell you. <laughs> um, it is a pain. Um, but uh, again, it's a blessing for me um, when I uh, went full time. I. Uh, I haven't stopped. I haven't, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been easy at all. And there's nothing lucrative about this. If you're going to make high quality knives, not just uh, prison shanks with a shiny handle broom handle on and sharp, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I see a, a, a TikTok's famous for that. Um, uh, I, I'm on there too. And, um, um, but, if you if you want the good clients and you want to uh, you know have a uh, reputation, you you need to make quality products and it takes time to do that. Um, and it depends on the style and and all that and the knife you're working on. You know I can I do both stock removal and forged knives. I make a lot. I make all of my own Damascus. So it depends on what I'm making. If I'm doing stainless knives or forged mosaics that one's going to take a lot more work and a lot more time than the other. And uh, a, most of the knives that I make and sell and people want are mosaic hunters and, and uh, skinners, you know, it's, it's not a lot of the stainless knives that I made, uh, I'm, I'm, I, you know, that I do make. And, uh, but I, I enjoy doing both. It, you know, I'm, I don't have a, a preference, but I, I really love forging. Let me just uh, say that I, forging is a lot of fun. But um, it, it's a, it's not an easy business, and uh, and it's not an overnight deal. And uh, you know, it took me thirty plus years to collect the tools that I have today, and I build a lot of my own tools. And uh, it just doesn't happen overnight. Um, you have to build a, uh, a reputation and a client list or a clientele and, and uh, you know, like the movie, if you build it, they will come. And uh, it, it just takes a long time. For, it did for me. Let me say that. And I'm not there. I, I'm not I, like Steve Schwarzer says, when you think you have arrived, you're just getting started. And that, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, um, you know, it's. I, I'm not sure if it's a cultural thing or if it's just a uh, a human condition thing, but I, I saw this uh, this cartoon this, that was up on Facebook or something like that, and it showed two different lines, and it showed uh, people who want to be successful um, or you know it's a, or winning. You're right there. Everybody's like lined up to uh, to be in the winning line, but then the the little booth or whatever or line that uh, talks about 
uh, doing what it takes to win, nobody shows up to it, right? And like that's something that I think that's really a, a difficult concept for a lot of people to understand is that um, there is no get rich quick schemes in in anything that has a lot of substance. You know, if it's here today and gone tomorrow, it might be easy to break in, or maybe you can get um, your foot in the door um, and and hit a, a luck streak. But if, if you're really like looking at the building blocks of anything that has substance for a long period of time, um, it takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, you know, and that's a, that's no small, uh, uh, thing in knives either, because, uh, I mean, I've seen the hands of, uh, hard work and knife makers and they're not pretty. Yeah, man, you got that right. It's, it's 80 hours a week. It, I work a minimum of 60 for sure. And, uh, the last month or so i've been putting in way more than that um I, as a matter of fact when this podcast is over i'll be in the shop finishing up some heat treating so uh, it's a never-ending process um you got to stay with it you can't you just got to quit counting your your labor <laughs> yeah at least in the customs it, it, it's a different world if you're doing you know a, a factory or a production style knife and and that's something i would love to do i just don't know if that's ever going to work out but who knows yeah and that that even comes with a lot of risk too because you know like i i see i i see some custom makers who will spend um a decent amount of time in their career um developing new patterns out and things like that and then they get to a point where one pattern is like a really um, hot ticket for them. And then they'll try to take that into the production world. But uh, unless you have, um, a, a lot of savings or, you know, that, uh, pre-orders are going to work out well, or so, or you have a, an avenue where somebody's going to buy them and take, take that risk on for you, you got to spend all that money in manufacturing those things and finish them out and quality control. And then you have to worry about if, you know, another production company makes it for you, if they're going to ruin your reputation on a production line. So it's like n nothing, nothing good, uh, comes without risk. Um, but there's a lot of things that if you, the, the more risk averse you are, the harder it's going to be because you're growing stuff real slow. Right. Right. And, and, and everything you just said is all of the reasons why I have it. Yeah. Um, I, there's, I have uh, folders on my computer with ideas and, and uh, marketing plans and business plans for something like that, that just I'll click off of it after thinking about it a while, because it's a huge risk. Um, like you say, with anything, and it's it's the man or the person with a great vision and a good, very good plan and a good marketing strategy that can make that work. You take like Josh Smith; uh, he has a great model, and uh, I can remember I have the magazine here in my shop uh, office somewhere of Josh Smith standing at a grinder when he was 13 years old. And, uh, you know, I was just reading a magazine. I was a young knife maker. And uh, and I was like, you, you would never know, you never see that one day, you know, this guy being a, a, a master smith that's now got a, a very high quality company, knife production company. And, uh, but he's got a great plan. And, and, and he's, he's running it well, apparently. 
Yeah, I mean, and an, another thing about Josh and the Montana Knife Company is that, uh, well, one, one, he's gotten a lot of really great exposure uh, from Joe Rogan and a lot of the other uh, hunting crowds and, and you know, ce- celebrities. But um, one thing that I, I really appreciate about his product is it's very high quality for, for the cost. And, and so it puts those knives, um, which, you know, I I would probably consider them production, but really semi-production because he's touching every, or, you know, his team is touching every one of them and quality controlling them real high. But, um, but the, the quality of those knives is, is what I would consider something coming out of a master Smith's mind. Uh, he doesn't skimp on those things just to uh, make a quick buck. And if he's making money at it, that's great. Um, but uh, th- those, like some of the prices on like a Speed Goat and other other um, products like that, are very obtainable for knife uh, for uh, knife collectors or users that don't have the extra scratch to get into, uh, you know, true custom work. So it's kind of opening up the world of knives to a lot more people too. You're right, and and you know he's leveraging. Uh, he's a he's a great communicator, and uh, you know he's a good leader, and that's where it starts. I can tell you with any business, um, and he's he's put it forth, and uh, you know starting with a mediocre uh, setup and and running with it, and man, that's just awesome. I mean, I'm I'm happy for that man. I think it's a great thing for him. Um, but like you say, it is a high quality product, and and. His reputation will sell it, and 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 then once the user has it, it's going to sell more of them because it's it's a high quality product, and that's with you know from the from the nobody name maker to the maker with a big name. That's where it that's where it starts. That's the seed, and uh, I I tell people this all the time. I didn't sell my knives for a long time. I made them. And, you know, I'd give them to uncles and brothers and cousins. But I was, I could look at them and, you know, say, eh, that ain't that great. And, you know, I went to a knife show here in, in Louisiana. And I said, I'm going to sell my knife. I walked around and I saw a few tables and said, I, I, I can sell my knives, you know, with these guys. So I, I get my table and and I'm set up to show and I'm sitting right next to Randy and Robert Captapon. And I looked at their knives and looked at mine and I wanted to cover mine up. And, uh, you know, no matter how much I thought I was ready, I was still needing some help. And I think that's, a, uh, you know, if, if you can recognize that, and even to this day, I, I have makers look at my knives and, and, and master this a while back. Swarger, he he'll stop by here and 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 stay with me, and and we'll get to hang out in the shop a couple of days, and he'll he'll sit down and say, okay, what do you think about this knife? And um, he'll he'll be brutal about it, and uh, he'll work me over the coals, and that's exactly what I want. I want to know what you think about it. Same with uh, my bud J W Randall. He uh, he'll tell you if there's you know if you want to hear it, you know he'll tell you, and that's. I think that's a, a lot of a lot of young makers don't want to don't want to have any input. They get kind of angry at you, and um, uh, you know if you don't want to know, don't don't ask. 
Um, I, th- I think you need to learn as much as you can and continue learning because that's what I do. I want to continue learning and I, I'm, I'm nobody and I, I learn something every day and I, I see knives every day that is miles and leaps and bounds ahead of mine and I want to just sell all of my equipment and do something else. So, uh, and, and that's just something I recognize. Um, a person ought to want to get better all the time at their craft. And, um, you know, instead of, you know, trying to uh, sell a prison shank, focus on making a better prison shank till you, you know, till you get something that's, you know, you got some good clean grind lines and um, something besides a broom handle for uh, grip. And unless that's what the, the, the you know it's designed for, <laughs> but that's that is the biggest problem I see in this this uh, you know if I'm, anybody wanting to grow and you know become better maker and become successful Smith like we were talking about with Josh, he he didn't settle for for uh, prison shanks I can tell you, and um, I, I I don't want to do that either. It's just it's it's just something that ought to be in a person for any craftsman to to have some pride about your work and and quality and you know the whole nine yards. That's the only way you can build customers anyway. They know a customer or collector or anybody they they're not you know if you can see it they can see it and uh, you know from heat treating uh, you know to the final product. Um, I. I tell this story a lot. I, I met a maker that learned how to forge or make knives from watching a TV show. And for two years, he was making these things and selling them and didn't realize he needed to temper it. Didn't realize he needed to temper his knives. And so can you imagine what's running around out there? I mean, it's that... I just don't understand, you know, why you would jump off into doing that without learning the craft and educating yourself beyond a reality show. And I'm not knocking the TV show. Uh, I don't. I know a lot of. I have a lot of friends that's that's been on it. And um, J. W. Randall's been on there twice. Won it twice. Um, but uh, it, it's the the it's not an educational program, so people shouldn't take it as that. It's entertainment. I've worked on those shows, those kind of shows, reality TV shows, and it, I can promise you it's to entertain. It's, it's full of drama and you name it. And uh, so proper education. And fortunately, it took me a while, but I was able to get that and go and get under somebody's wing. And and, and whenever I can, I get under somebody else's wing and uh, learn more and, and continue to, to, you know, learn the craft. It's, it just makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I, I can't, I can't really place it. Um, like the, the mentality, whether it's like, whether it comes from ego or whether it comes from like, you know, culture or things like that. Like, uh, you know, I, I hear so many stories of, uh, older knife makers that the experience they got from like the previous generation um or group of makers was it it was it was almost critical of their work to the point where they would they would rather you fail out and not do it 
to discourage you. And so there wasn't so many makers than it was to, to actually encourage you. But in, in this world of, of, of makers that I, I've associated with and seek mentorship from and everything, I, I haven't experienced anybody who would rather uh, uh, get a leg up in the industry over my dead body in the swamp, right? It's, exactly. it's, it's, it's everybody is so willing to help and so willing to invest their time at their own detriment because they can't spend that time in the shop or promoting themselves or things like that, that if you will seek it out, then there's any number of guys that are, that will be there to help you, not just tell you that your thing sucks because they want to discourage you. And I think that maybe that's a large difference because, you know, in making knives for 30 plus years, you've probably seen the gambit too, where, you know, there's, there's those people who won't give you the time of day because they just don't want to see you go anywhere. And then being the kind of knife maker and mentor where you're more than willing to share yourself in every capacity that you can just to help another person like get, get under themselves and, and try to figure it all out. I think that's a, a more people should take advantage of that and, and seek out people because we don't, operate in an island, right? I mean, we're, we're all in some way influenced by other knife makers and other artisans in order to get where we are. And it doesn't detract from uh, your own work if you take these pieces. I mean, look at Steve Schwarzer. <clears throat> he's, a, a, yeah, he, he's somebody who will give attribution to all the people that he can uh, that helped him to get where he was or to build his Rolodex of knowledge. And and he is proud of that. He's proud of the people that he's associated with. And uh, it's, it's no detriment to a person if they are willing to seek knowledge out and, and seek, uh, you know, constructive criticism for their work in order to get better. Well, yeah, man, um, I'll, I'll tell you some things about the past. But, um, you, my, my theory or my, my opinion is you only compete against yourself. I'm not competing against anybody else. And that's what I've held on to for a long time. And when I first started making, I was fortunate that eventually it took a, a year or so before I met the, the Captapons and uh, took me on their wing and really straightened me out of what I had already learned. And, and I, I was learning from books. We didn't have internet, like I say, or at least I didn't. It was very infant back then. Very few people had it, and there wasn't anything online. So I, um, you know, they really straightened me out a lot. They, they taught me how to make dovetail bolsters and how to, how to pin them, but that wasn't something new. It was, that was, that had been around for quite a while, and they learned it from someone. And uh, like George Heron and some of those, you know, Ron Gaston from, from the Carolinas there. I mean, I, I, he, that's what he did. And if you look at some of his work and look at some of my older knives and, you know, you can see that I was, you know, making my bolsters like his and some of my handle shapes. But one of the reasons that it took me so long to uh, join and get into ABS and go for my journeyman stamp is because of what you was talking about a while ago. Exactly. And I'm talking about the from the guild and the ABS in the old days, um, there was a lot of what you're talking about, man. It's it's uh, people didn't want to 
didn't want to share anything. They didn't want anybody else to compete with. There was too many makers. And I mean, you, you didn't have to be told right in the face about it. It was obvious. And, it, and then there was a bickering going on between the two organizations about stock removal and forged and which one was better. I don't know if you remember that stuff, but it was, it was crazy. Yeah. But now, now that has went away, or at least the, I, I can't see any of it. And I think that both the Guild and the ABS are fine, outstanding organizations or they're, they're run by great people today. And it, it made me decide. And uh, I had a few uh, master smiths and smiths pushing me, you know, go, you need to get your, your journeyman stamp. And so I did, I went and tested. I hadn't got my stamp. I went and tested my, uh, performance test. And, um, but you know, I'm, I'm just excited about that. And I, and, and I'm excited about the organization and, um, a friend of mine is just joined the guild. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a great community now. And like you were talking about everybody now is sharing and, uh, willing to help. And I can remember when that was not the case. And one of the reasons why I started putting things online several years ago was for that reason. I'm a, I'm going to share with, you know, the, the people, guys that want to know that don't just can't find anybody to help them. And maybe just a little bit of what I can share will help somebody. And, you know, I wasn't monetized or anything like that until recently. I'm talking a couple of years ago. So I, I've been putting out content just for the, the, some of it is, uh, you know, it helps market myself, but um, it's valuable material in, in a lot of ways. Like you were talking about the dovetail bolster video. Um, it, it may not be the best way to do something, but it'll get somebody started. You know, I even I even do things differently now uh, as far as dovetail bolsters than I did back then. I have a few, a few shortcuts, a few things I do different, but that's just, you know, it, the, the basics are there. But you would never find anything like that or anybody sharing anything like that 25 years ago. It wasn't nowhere. And, and you, you, you had to really know somebody and, and somebody had to take you under wing and, you know, don't show anybody this and blah, blah, blah. I've even had people uh, comment online to me. Uh, why are you sharing this? You know, uh, I don't understand what the problem is. Is there, is there something wrong with that? Is, and, and uh, well, you share secrets. Well, it's not a secret. They learned it from somebody. You know, they didn't develop it. I can, you know, it's like knife patterns. You, there's not a knife pattern out there that's, that's today that's original. Unless it's some kind of uh, fantasy pattern. <laughs> basic, <laughs> basic using knives and uh, have been around forever. I, I've got a box out in my shop that probably has a thousand patterns in it and i'll see one pop up online and god just developed this pattern uh you can't use it but here i want to show it to you and i look in my box and there i got one pretty close to it um it's it's that kind of thing i don't in, in, unless you're patenting something like that and selling it and marketing as a production deal you know it's a it's kind of hard to to uh, argue with that stuff but sidetracking you there it's a it's a different world today you take guys like nick rossi and uh you know so many makers that are sharing their knowledge with, with people and just you know got schools and they're they're making a living from it and, and, and making a living from sharing not just making the tool 
but uh, showing people how to do it. And I think that is the coolest thing ever, man. Um, it's it, it's a it's a different world now. Put you know put it to you that way. Yeah, and I don't I don't feel that that's a sidetrack. I mean, that's kind of the uh, the point of the conversation, right? Is I, I um I, I think that my like a portion of my consideration is trying to accumulate uh, valuable knowledge, right? Because in the age of the internet, anybody can post anything, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's qualified, right? Right, right, and and. Like I'll use an example of why I really liked your video on dovetail bolsters is um, a good looking knife, even if a lot of people can't explain what makes it look good, is that it, it's, it's geometrically beautiful, right? It has all of the ratios uh, that the human eye uh, looks at and finds pleasing. And that's everything from the finish to the profile to the pin placement to the handle material colors, everything. And even uh, there, there's lots of knives that I see that might not have a proportion that's like super, um, like it doesn't hit on all the points for me. Um, but I can argue always that it has great ratios and things. Um, and the, the idea, at least that I had um, when I was... Uh, when I was going to get into bolsters is that I didn't want the bolsters to be misaligned and I wanted them to have a really great, um, uh, you know, chamfer or bevel on the, on the, the, you know, the Ricasso side. And I wanted them to all line up correctly on the, on the, the backside where the handle material fits. And when you add dovetails onto that, you add a, a, an additional level of, of geometry and dimensionality that you have to account for in your setup. Otherwise, when you get that all together, it's going to look like garbage if it's not right. And, That's right. And, and the way that you laid that out um, not only took into account those things for me, like I could tell that we were on the same page about what you should look for in good, like well-executed dovetail bolsters, but you also showed a process to get from the start to the finish on that, that produced that result. And so um, for me, it was just a really complete video. Now, I, I mean, I've also modified uh, some of the way that I do things. Like I, uh, I, I've had a pin press for a long time, but I wasn't always using it for my bolsters. And I, uh, I incorporated that in um, to, get, to get the bolsters to line up correctly and everything and make sure that there's no shifting going on. I use a file guide. Uh, just to hold everything true. Um, I've used um, uh, super glue uh, at first to attach, attach the, uh, the bolsters together to get the symmetry right and everything on both sides. But I've switched to using uh, like painter's tape and, and, and duct tape, or oh, sorry, painter's tape and uh, uh, super glue. Like there's a bunch of little things that I've found that are easier in my mind but the rudiments of how I actually execute those things still is the same. And I'll tell everybody if they want, like I charge a little bit more for, for doing dovetail bolster work because, because of the geometry and the setup. And it takes several hours for me to do it. And I, I'll tell them that. I'm like, you know, like I'm, if I'm going to do dovetail bolsters, I'm going to do it right. Uh, but because of that, it's going to take me a little while longer. And so you're going to pay a, a little upcharge for it. But other than that, you know, they're done when they're done and they're going to be done correctly. That's right. Well, it's, it's a higher, uh, you know, it's a, it's a higher skill level. I'll just be blunt about it. Uh, you can, you can make a cut out a knife, slap some handles on it and 
grind them evenly and then put them on the knife and uh, polish your fronts and you know in no time but making those bolsters whether they're soldered on or pinned on is a a skill it's it's a it's a time consuming and it takes a lot of control and accuracy and you know um there's there's a lot of little micro steps i know that uh, i probably didn't cover in that video that that for example when when i i use a one-eighth pin to press in the material and i use a, a reamer a one-eighth reamer that's tapered but when i ream that hole i only let the point of that reamer touch the you know the outside when it goes through it doesn't you know it doesn't peek through it that way when i put the pin in there the pin is like almost friction fit and if it's loose and you could get you know you can that thing wobbles a little bit and you press it on you're done and that's but i, I there's some other things i do to prevent that as well but i try to do that with that's just little micro tips and techniques that that uh that i've just on my own learned over the years and if you if those dovetails are off just a uh, five thousandths you can see them from here you know six foot away it doesn't take much to throw that off and so it's really uh it, it'll put the sweat on your brow when you go to press them on <laughs> you know that oh, it's, yeah. especially you know if you're making a knife with it has small they're not very wide most of mine are three quarters wide on, on say skinning knives and if they're if they're a half inch wide you don't have much room to hold everything and uh you know get your pins in without causing some kind of uh bulging and that sort of thing and uh, I, I used to solder this stuff on you i started out soldering actually i started out brazing and it was with brass and i learned that from a book and i'm not even going to tell you which book it was because it sent me down a terrible rabbit hole and uh, it's a very popular maker and book and he's, he's he's old now but whatever um he makes great stuff but it was the captive pawns that said throw that crop away man you know they're cajun print throw that in the garbage let me show you how to do that so <laughs> So that's what I did <laughs> I <threw it laughs> in the garbage. Well, I still have the book and um, um, I, I have a lot of those old books, but uh, some of them I uh, are eyebrow raising. But I think a lot of that was like what we were talking about a while ago, send you down a rabbit hole intentionally. But um, imagine, imagine brazing a guard on or, you know, I'm talking brazing, not soldering. Uh, the temperatures you're dealing with and trying to keep from losing your temper and your knife. Uh, it's just, it's crazy stuff. But I, I did a few of them. I still have some of those knives. Not a one of them was ever sold or did I try to, but um, anyway, you learn through the, all those life experiences and, and little tips and tricks and things like that. And uh, I'm, I'm just glad that uh, uh, somebody like yourself picked up something from one of my videos. It means that, um, it helps somebody and it's kind of, it's a rewarding thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't know why I did it to myself, but, um, I've, I've always, uh, been drawn to smaller, uh, what some might call uh, daintier knives. Uh, some people say lady knives or whatever, but you know, um, 
I spent a long time in hunting and fishing, uh, going out and just, uh, I'll, I'll go f trout fishing a lot, uh, back up in the mountains and everything or hills in this case. Um, and when you take in a lot of extra gear with you, it just, it, it just makes you weigh a lot. And so, you know, in, in that true fashion of when like ounces or pounds, um, I would almost never carry um, a whole lot of gear with me. I'd carry a fishing pole. I carry a pocket full of uh, hooks and I carry a pocket that had a little cup with worms in it or can. Right. And, um, and when I was, uh, when I was doing any type of cleaning or anything like that on game or, or fish or whatever, I didn't need a super big knife. I definitely didn't need like a, a an eight or nine inch fillet knife. And, um, you know, so small was always it made a lot of sense to me. And even still uh, doing like a, a whitetail hunting and things like that, um, I, I was able to clean a lot of game with a pocket knife. And I saw uh, some uh, old timers use uh, utility knives, you know, with the disposable blades and, and clean an entire deer. And so I, I knew that big knives were not necessarily necessary. Um, but I personally liked small, uh, fixed blades and whatnot because, or, or pocket knives, because I could do a lot with a, a little bit of real estate on the blade and, uh, getting into dovetail bolsters with, you know, you're talking about less than a half an inch, um, on the, on them, uh, getting two pins to sit in there and getting it to not move and you to, you know, notice all the, uh, geometrical shifts and stuff was a real pain. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I got the uh, bolster uh, or the pins too close to where the dovetail was supposed to sit. And then it screwed up my entire placement on putting the handles on, or maybe I blew through the, uh, the uh, pinholes or whatever, when I was trying to uh, grind everything down. And those are a lot of lessons that you just have to, um, like you have a very great, uh, base of information, but it's not foolproof. And you, you got to be able to suss that out for yourself. Like I had to make a lot of adjustments to make sure it worked not only for my tooling and the way that I think about things, but also the canvas that I was working on, which are just smaller knives. And, um, I can't honestly say that it got easier when I put it on bigger knives. Um, uh, it just changed the dynamic on how I have to do things, but that's kind of the, the way that information goes like brazen things might've made sense to that one knife maker, or might, it might've been a ruse, but, um, but information, you have to take it at its value and then you have to be able to uh, fit it to what makes sense for you and how you can do things in your shop with the tooling and stuff you have. And um, it's, you know, if, if something requires a you know, 5,000 piece, uh, $5,000 piece of equipment to do that thing, then, and you just go out and buy it expecting to do it, that's not, that's not the entire circle of like what's required to, to apply that piece of knowledge. It takes you first. That's right. That's what it's all about. Like I was saying earlier about the little micro things you change. There's so many micro tips and techniques that you do it. You just can't cover everything. And that's constantly evolving. You know, I see uh, makers, old makers making things today, doing things that, that they didn't do 20 years ago is totally different and because um, they they just evolve and a lot of that for me is market you know what the what the people want and a lot of you know the the knives i make is what people want and they're what they're asking for and what i actually use and what they want is two different things in many cases for example <laughs> you just mentioned it um 
uh, for years and I, I make them. You've probably seen my uh, frame locks. Uh, I make a uh, clip point frame lock and I have cleaned dozens of deer with a three inch bladed frame lock and folders just like that. To me, a three, three and a half inch blade is all I need, you know, in, in just any while you can skin a buffalo with it. It's um, you don't have to have a buoy to dress game. And now the, the, a lot of the fish we clean here, a lot of them, you know, bull reds and things like that. Yeah, bigger fillet knife. Um, I, but I use a, uh, a small knife for a lot of fish cleaning. I'm talking a four inch blade that is, uh, a matter of fact, I just made some, I'm, I'm starting to move some of those, sell some of those, but personally I've had that, you know, that's my style, my, my personal style. And, you know, people look at it like, what the heck is that? It looks like a very, very sharp fillet knife. And, uh, but it's, it can work as an EDC or whatever, but it's, uh, it's just practical for me. And you, you don't have to have a, uh, chopping axe or a buoy knife to, uh, skin game. And, you know, they're nice if you, you know, doing camp work and, uh, doing hiking and packing and things like that. If you need to, to trim a limb, you know, I'm not a bush crafter per se. I have been lost in the swamp for more than one day at a time and survived just fine without a scandy ground knife, uh, just using a, a pocket knife, you know, I, but I wasn't spending time making furniture either. I was spending time surviving, actually surviving, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wasn't carving chairs and crap. I was, you know, skinning game or, you know, I've been lost with my brother. I've been lost by myself. My, my, we, we, we focused on, uh, food, water and shelter. And, um, when we were lost and, and it's not a fun thing and it's no, you, you're not in a show or a game. It is, you know, no, nobody knows where you're at. I mean, I've been lost 15 miles in the middle of the Chafalaya swamp. And if you know how big that place is, it's several hundred thousand acres big. It's probably a million acres. I don't know. It's huge. And um, being 15 miles from the place you put in it and lost, um, and and then you know that to the point where there's search parties looking for you, and I'm focusing on the, the very essential things, not not being necessarily comfortable, but just having something to drink and eat and stay dry, and having an, a clip point frame lock done just fine for all of that, you know. Um, but I, I, I like big knives. My, one of my favorites is a parang and a machete. And I just made a parang a while back for the for my YouTube channel. And I love uh, parang. Uh, it's a great tool in the swamp, you know, for for blazing a trail. But you could you could skin a squirrel with it if you had to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think some people would. Uh be aghast to know that i i've cleaned more game with this little s30v kershaw um uh liner lock that i have i think i maybe it was about eight eight or so years ago i bought it and uh it was under a hundred dollars and the thing the thing that i like about it is it's light and because of the heat treat on the steel it holds an edge real well and that is all i need um i carry that thing around everywhere 
uh, but it has it has been all over. It's uh, clean pronghorns and uh, and deer and and hog and all sorts of stuff. I've even you know taken it f- trout fishing and everything like that too. And um, uh, it, I think that a personal preference on a knife, like what what you actually carry and what the market is looking for, are two different things. And that's something that's really difficult to distinguish when you're making a business and everything because um, sometimes like what I look for in a knife is not always um, what I make as a maker because my business and what sells knives is a little bit different than what I personally use but I will always try to incorporate those things uh, that I find the most valuable, like a, a really good heat treat, great uh, you know, grind geometry on the bevels and whatnot, um, the weight distribution and, and, and weight itself are a big thing, how ergonomic it feels. All of those are personal preferences that go into my knives. It doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, it would be a drop point hunter or a bird and trout or, you know, something a little bit larger or smaller. Um, it doesn't matter what the pattern itself is necessarily necessarily but the aesthetic those things that i look for are really kind of like what um i <clears throat> i impart into the to the knife and that's based on my experiences that's right and that's that's what everybody should do um you know, hopefully they have some experiences to do that with because if you don't have something to fall on you know how do you know what works and what don't i mean from from just putting the knife in your hand and feeling it and is it comfortable? I see a lot of knives that I'm like, man, that would give me a blister in 10 minutes. It's got these grooves and things all over. I can't understand that, you know, but like especially a camp knife. It needs to be comfortable and not not be, have hot spots on it. And that's my personal preference. So when I make a knife, I try to, you know, for a customer, I'm, I'm going to give them something that it feels comfortable in my hand and, and uses comfortably in my hand. And I, I don't want to give them something unless they want to put it on the wall and they specifically say, you know, you know, do this to it. I, and that's kind of rare. I, I made a fantasy knife a while back. I think you, it, it was, it's on my channel. It's part of the YouTube challenge. And, um, you know, it, it's a zombie killer or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a, a mosaic pattern, uh, um, and just some screwball looking recurved knife and, uh, you know, something that I would, wouldn't get caught with, uh, but it looks cool. And, uh, but somebody, a collector wanted that knife, you know, and I sold it to him and, um, and it's hanging on his wall. It's, it's cool. Definitely cool. Just not something that's functional. And for, 99% of the people that buy from me, they want, you know, they're, they're buying functional knives and believe it or not, buying a lot of folks buy mosaic knives or, or just, you know, random Damascus pattern knives and they hunt with them. And, and that's cool. You keep, you take care of them. They, and you can dress deer with them. I, I've got one that I've had my personal Damascus knife. I've got one and I have cleaned several deer. Last year, I cleaned three deer with it. And it is spotless, but I, as soon as I get done with it, I wipe it down, put a little oil on it, and put it away. And uh, but it performs just fine, just as good as my mono steel blades do. So they're definitely functional. That's what you. That's what I want to give to the customer. Make it pretty and functional. <laughs> yeah, and I, 
You know, there, there's lots of uh, uh, collectors of knives or uh, those who will use them. You know, they don't necessarily think about um, using them as, as survival knives. It's mostly like this is a pretty box cut knife. I can open up all my Amazon groceries and whatever else I'm going to do. <laughs> and, and, you know, I that that's not a, a fault or anything like that. We live in a society where uh, there's lots of stuff that is uh, uh, factory to table instead of farm or, you know, farm or uh, out, out, out back to uh, table. But um, I, I, for a knife maker to be able to have the experience of what, what those like those core competencies in a knife are supposed to be, um, I think is very valuable and, um, you know, because being out in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, I spent some time on like the Alazan Bayou and Angelina rivers and uh, stuff out East Texas and forests where it's, you know, you know, 20, 30,000 acres and you don't know where you're going and out in the mountains where, uh, you know, the elements will get you and whatnot. Like all of that, uh, gives you a really great perspective on the fact that you could be a mile away and dead somewhere because nobody can find you. And it really is, is as simple as if you, if your time is out and you don't get to uh, civilization or whatever, uh, the elements can, can get you. And the, the, the difference between those who survive and those who don't sometimes is just uh, a, a matter of uh, either great preparedness and uh, fortitude or luck. It sometimes it's, it just comes down to uh, you don't really know. I mean, it's the same way with swimmers drown all the time. They could be a really great swimmer and they're in the water and something happens and they drown. And I, I would prefer at least when I'm thinking about my knives is uh, what would the worst case scenario be for this thing that I'm about, about to send out. And if I feel confident that I would put my own life uh, on the line with this thing in my hand, then I feel just as confident with somebody else using it too. And you that's exactly right. And it, I feel like, uh, it's, you're putting your reputation on the line. Every, every time you send one out, you want to put that, you know, best quality you can. And it, it, a lot of these knives are expensive too. I mean, they, they can be very expensive, but, you know, I, I carry my own knives. I, I I have a lot of, I've got boxes of factory knives. And you mentioned one while ago that I, I've, I think I have that same knife that was given to me years ago for a birthday, a few years ago. Um, uh, I love good, good factory knives that I like to carry my own knives because I like to use them and, and see how they perform. One of, you know, that uh, clip point, I have also have a drop point frame lock. And I, I still carry that knife just about everywhere I go. It's a prototype that I carry. And I have done everything you can name, you know, as an electrician, skin and wire, you name it, uh, stripping wire, uh, to skinning rabbits with that knife. And, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a hollow ground knife, too. Um, the, uh, I, I do both flat and hollows on those blades. depends on what customers want but um you know it performed just fine and but i like to use my own knives to see how they perform because i can make changes to them things i don't like and, and that particular knife i did make changes to it um and uh, even the clip point that i make has had several revisions to it um as a matter of fact steve schwarzer has my 
clip point prototype. Um, we were doing some horse trading at the at Blade Show a couple of years ago, and he won my. Uh, that's all I had on me. I had to give it to him, but um, I've made several changes based on using them, and in whether it's my straight knives, folders, or whatever. Um, I, I believe in using them and using your experiences with them. And a lot of people don't realize that, that makers that, that make knives have, have experience with knives and they, the choices they make on their designs and that sort of thing are based on their experience. A lot of people don't realize that. And uh, you can tell by their comments, like you're just an idiot, <laughs> you know, they'll say things and like, you know, I didn't fall off the wagon yesterday, my friend, but, um, you know, I've used, you know, every kind of knife you can think of in, in every kind of situation, except that, well, actually, I have been in a knife fight, actual one, and I didn't come out on the good end. But uh, you, you never will in, um, in any kind of uh, situation like that. It's not a, uh, it's not Hollywood in that world. But uh, using knives and the experience of using them teaches you a lot about how to make them and what you want and that whether you're a carpenter or whatever a builder or you name it uh, you, you learn from experience and what what works and what don't work it should yeah no i couldn't agree more and i mean and i th i think that this uh, something that you know R rambo knives uh, ag russell there's a video out there on youtube that people can watch where ag russell is talking about the rambo uh style knives and the serrations and he he just said it's it's absolutely idiotic right like why would you want a saw on the back of a blade it's almost useless and I, i've had people that a have asked for serrations or uh, saw saw teeth on the back of their blades before and i'll, I'll turn them down uh, because I don't find it very practical. I mean, I've I used knives like that before to see how well they cut and whatnot. And there's some things that are, even in the the scope of you know normal normal looking knives that are still kind of fantasy. And it's the difference between um, big knives versus small knives. If, you know, hand forged knives versus stock removal knives. It's a you know it's a fighting knives versus utility knives. Like some people get really hung up on a knife being made uh, for a very, very specific purpose. And anything outside of that very narrow view means that that knife is not applicable. But if you've seen somebody skin a deer with a box cutter, you could tell the box cutter is also used for making, like opening up boxes or you know, skin and deer. Or if you got into a knife fight, I mean, terrorists have used those before. I mean, it's, there's a lot of utility in knives that goes outside of this concept of what it was originally made for. And I, um, it, it really interests me some of the psychological side of, of a knife because when you kind of start getting into those groups of uh, people who think a knife is a, uh, you know, has a certain utility within that um, um, area of use, then you start getting real campy or tribal on it. And um, I'm, I'm a lot more open-minded than that. I can use a knife... I could use a, uh, a chef knife to, to do a lot of stuff too that you know, you probably cringe at sometimes, but I've used chef knives to uh, uh, clean game before and um, open up boxes before and all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, it's just kind of like in, in the eye of the beholder, right? Well, yeah, man. Uh, um, you know, going back to my, my history of, of making knives and wanting to make knives and getting into knife making, 
and my my ability or inability to stay still in life. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, I, I went down the martial arts trail, and um, it, but it was at the when I started making knives, the the two wasn't together. But it was later on I started training in Kali uh, through Jeet Kune Do. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but that is a the, from from Bruce Lee's um, philosophy, and I trained with some of his students. I was a um, apprentice under Ted Wong, and it was his last private student. But I, I through Dan Inosanto, which was his Los Angeles uh, protege um, that he actually put in charge of, of his school in Los Angeles, is where I I uh, was introduced to Kali, which is a Filipino martial art, and so so during that period of my martial arts training, I started delving off into the uh, the knife world. And because of the, the Eskrima, Kali, and Arnis arts and the stick and dagger. So I did a lot of training with uh, stick and dagger and, and knife fighting. And, uh, you know, through uh, pit jacks a lot. And, um, you know, I told you my parang is a, the parang is one of my favorite uh tools in the field but it was used it was made made as a tool but it was used as a weapon a lot in uh in in that world indonesian world but um i found that i you know i started making wanting to make knives that were quote tactical and um but i found through through the years that um it didn't matter so much about the 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 knife that if it was sharp and pointy, it was tactical. And um, yeah, there's there's certain elements and things, you know, with, that you're using the knife for, say a, a, a field guide, a seal, or somebody digging mines and, you know, there's things like that. But far as uh, self-defense, there are certain things, design elements that need to be there. But um, in real life situations, um, a pencil, is a very tactical object. It's um, it's deadly, and if it's used properly. Um, but I found that my life, my knife making, start started paralleling with my martial arts training, and and uh, so a lot of my older knives were uh, influenced with the, the Indonesian Asian styles and things like that. And of course, I was still making hunting and fishing knives, but. I've got a variety of, of things like that. I never went off into the Japanese culture of knife making, like katanas and stuff like that. I made a few tantos, and matter of fact, I'm building a tanto right now for the YouTube Samurai Challenge. And it's not a traditional, but it's it's going to be close. It's a go my uh, tanto, but it, anyway, it's it's crazy how all of those things influence your your knife making and um that's one that certainly did and and i found that a a frame lock with about three and a half inch blade was very practical and tactical for for the years of training that i did in knife defense and um, the usability and and the speed and functionality of that knife was perfect for that and um even the small EDC straight blade that I uh, that I'm starting to push now is another version of that with a different twist, you know. But uh, you can also open boxes with it.
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, my martial arts experience started when I was young. I don't, my parents, I guess, put us, uh, I'm one of eight kids. So, uh, my parents tried to find some things to do with us to keep us from fighting each other. Um, and I, I started in the school of Japanese, um, um, I don't know what Shito Ryo is, is actually considered, but it's an Okinawan style of uh, martial arts. And, um, and like, uh, I'm trying to think here, like Shotokan and a few others are, are like stem from that uh, style of, of sparring and, and using momentum and things like that to, uh, mostly get out of a situation where you're fighting like the the, the foundation of what we learned uh, when i was uh, uh doing shitorio was um try not to get into fights in the first place and then exactly. you won't have to you won't have to worry about what, whether you can fight or not but once you once you get down the discipline of trying not to get into fights in the first place then it's like how do you use body motion and things if you don't have a weapon and then it's it progresses into uh, you know sparring and then uh, using weaponry, and, exactly. And and I've always thought a lot about that. Like uh, I, I prefer not getting into knife fights. Um, I don't really like the idea of getting stabbed and poked and sliced up and whatnot. There's a lot of arteries that could end your day real quick. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, but the the concept, yeah, is the same. Like I, I I've always thought about that. Like if if I make a knife. Um, and it needs to be used in a, uh, survival situation, regardless of whether that's a, a rogue animal of some sort, um, whether it's a life and death type of survival situation outdoors or whether you're getting into a, some type of a fight, is it something that you can use? And I've always thought that like every single one of my knives have an EDC component to them. So whether you're open in a box or you have to get into a fight or whether you're, you know, skin and game, those are all like components of what I think about but all that does come back full circle into um, this martial arts style that I learned where it's like don't don't put yourself in a situation where you have to use something and prepare for those uh, circumstances if they should uh, come around and um, and so that that's that's my focus with knives. I, mean, I think that, the, that that's really kind of an, an element that I do focus on even though it's subliminal a lot. Um, but the, 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 at least the, the concept of martial arts, I think really does, um, um, help in, in trying to frame what is practical and what's not, what is useful in what scenarios and, uh, does give you, um, the mindset of contingency, which I think is important. That's right. Well, it's just like any, you know, the, the, the training I did. You know, when I started out, I actually did uh, trained in Shotokan for a little while, very brief period. But my interest, um, you know, waned off. And then I, I, you know, got interested into the uh, Jeet Kune Do world and mainly because of the five ranges of combat. And, uh, you know, one of them being grappling and, uh, you know, which was kind of unheard of in those days which in any, I've been in many scuffles and they always end up on the ground, pretty much 98% of them. And that's what attracted me. Um, But then there's also the element of um, weapons and especially today, everybody carries weapons. And, but I always, you know, looked at even, even the training and even the, the 
the the arts of Kali and the Penjak Salat and they're all, you know, they're more defensive until you have to go into offense, but you're you're living in a defensive world. So you one of the things you would do, say in Kali, is is you would defang the snake and those are the extremities, the very the hands, the fingers. Um and and so you're defending not not being the aggressor but defending and you're not you know you walk out the door every day you're not planning on having this confrontation in life and 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 i've I've been there and it wasn't it wasn't my fault it wasn't looked for it wasn't you know planned fortunately i i came out of it okay and in both situations but one situation and this was from my training was having a gun put in my face and and through my training i know this what it was it was being able to talk the perpetrator out of shooting me between the eyes and um, talking down and just using psychology which is one of the principles of jeet kune do and uh, it's the art of fighting without fighting and um and you know using using psychology as a weapon to defend yourself and weapons itself are secondary you got to use your mind to stay out of trouble for one and and then but if it jumps on you you gotta you gotta do what you can to survive and and having a practical tool that'll help whether it be a knife or a gun or whatever uh, is a plus in my book so if it's an ink pen or a pencil you name it. Yeah. Well, um, uh, one of my favorite movies is gross, gross point blank, um, with Cusack and he uses a fountain pen. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good well, movie. Well, I, I can tell you, um, you go to any prison and there's nothing but round sharp pointy objects when it comes to shanks there. Um, whether it's an ink pen, you, you can't, you know, po- Having something that pierces the body, you know, to reach a, a vital area or even just cause trauma is all that's needed, whether it's an ink pen or a machete. I mean, it's, uh, it, you get, you get poked pretty good, pretty deep with something like that. And, uh, it's, it's, it's more, it's psychological as well. And it's part of the trauma. It's, it's, um, I've been stabbed. And you, you may not know it at the moment, but you will a few minutes later. Um, it's it's like a person that's being, you know, shot with a twenty-two. They may not feel it or know it at the moment, but it's gonna it's not gonna take long. It's very damaging. <laughs> um, yeah, even the, even the uh, the porcupine uh, with its needly uh, um, quills could uh, uh, thwart a lion. So, yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, it doesn't take much to uh, to distract you, uh, especially when the appearance of blood uh, comes into play. It's very psychological. Yeah. Well, kind of on that note, you know, there's there's a lot of things I think uh, about knives that are very philosophical, and th- there's there's so many things about like the, the mechanisms of knives, like, um, you know, is, is this thing, uh, does it look the best that I think it can? Am I selling knives? Um, do people like me, uh, that 
that also distract you from being able to just um, stay the course and perfect yourself, right? And then this kind of like balance of um, talking about survival and um, and you know defensiveness and offensiveness and knives. I think that we get really hung up sometimes um, on uh, the approval rating of other people. And I, I, I hope that in some ways, uh, when people think about like conversations like this, it spurs them on to, uh, to maybe think a little bit less about, um, uh, having fans, uh, in, in some ways or having, um, uh, you know, groupies and instead just like keeping your head down and working on your craft because like at the end of the day, like all these things come out, like your, your value systems, uh, your experiences and things uh, like that, that formulate what it is that you think about in knives when you're making them, it all comes out kind of in the wash. Um, and, and if you focus on that versus trying to focus on, um, the pomp and circumstance of knives, I think that that's a better route to go down because what, you know, what you're producing, um, you know, is a, a direct reflection of you and your experiences. So much, man. It's, it's, it's the truth. And, and I see, a, I, you know, for years I didn't, um, going back to the disputes I was talking about between the two organizations and not seeing any of that today. What's disheartening is when you see individuals in social media doing that. It's like, it's like something new to them. It's like, man, this is, this is old arguments. Why are you, why are you bringing this back up again? You know, there's a, um, you'll see folks online. It's, I, I'm not a, traditional knife maker in a sense or bladesmith like i said i make i do stock removal only and forge knives but there's stock removal in every bit of it um you know unless you sharpen it on a rock after you get through forging it out it's stock removal and then it's still stock removal but I see a lot of there's there's a lot of young makers that are that are it's not a lot it's a few that I see that's it's developing this snobbery and man I, I just hope that that can be discouraged because it's not healthy you know for the community um, you know help each other a knife is a knife and and like I tell people you when you buy a bar of steel to make your knife from, whether you forge it or cut it out, it's already forged from the factory. It's either cold forged or hot rolled, uh, cold rolled or hot rolled, that's forged. It comes annealed, ready to go. Now, when, when you forge it, then you need to do some thermal cycling and fix all that crap that you disoriented in that steel and uh, do your quench and tempering. But, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with the, the either are. And, and I just don't understand why you got some of that happening in the community. And I just hope it doesn't roll over and, and like it did back in the past. I don't see that. And I'm, I'm glad to see that because uh, you got some great makers in both styles, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that there's a lot uh, more, uh, knowledge transfer uh, that goes on amongst makers now where, you know, the, the, the difference, if you, if we're talking about blade steels, um, the difference between um, 
S30V and uh, I don't know, some like CPM 154, you know, there, there are some differences, but yeah. the felt difference to the end user is really kind of marginal. And some people might like hear that and, and gasp, but really it, it kind of comes down to um, 440C, um, nothing wrong with it. I mean, there are, there are things that um, it might not be the best for, but it, but it largely doesn't matter. I mean, I've seen some really, really cheap uh, uh, knives that don't hold an edge really well, but they still stab the same way. Uh, they'll cut, they just won't cut as long. Um, and there's all this like art, like in, in knife collecting and knife use in some ways, there's a lot of artificial mechanisms, uh, for, uh, I guess, gauging quality, um, like how many times you can cut a rope with something or does it pass a paper test or whatever. There's uh, plenty of, uh, grinds that I've seen from a lot of different makers that if you held it up to a piece of paper to cut it, it wouldn't, but I can guarantee you it'll break down one or two elk without ne needing to be stropped. And it's, it all comes down to the uh, the geometry for the purpose, and 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 so on. So I guess in some ways, if the argument comes from the end user, it's kind of like opinion is like a butthole. Um, everyone has one, <laughs> and they stink, right? But if if it's coming from the makers, um, I think that that's um, an education thing because the a maker that perpetuates a myth. Um, is is either doing it because they're trying to um, differentiate themselves, or um, or they're not embracing like what we know collectively to be true, or you know something like that. And uh, those are ones that just need to mature. Um, but uh, for everyone else, like if a customer wants S30V and they're willing to pay for the knife, and they're like, okay, you use S30V, I'll I'll buy a knife from you. Then okay, I'll I'll sell it to you. Um, if they want some like sp special, um, magic steel that I don't, uh, you know, care for too much, then I might not work with it. I mean, if something takes too long to do a hand finish on, or if they're looking for something super expensive that they don't want to pay for things like that, I mean, I'll let, I'll let my, um, kind of where I'm at and what I want to do dictate uh, whether I'll work with it or not. But, uh, another maker can't really necessarily convince me uh, that one thing is better than the other because, uh, you know, we do luckily have collective knowledge that we can fall back on and kind of um, acts as the ballast for us and being cordial and, uh, and you know, a community of makers, at least, that aren't trying to fight over stupid stuff. Right. You, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's, it's about education and maturity. It's, it's, it's uh, experience. And, you know, I, I, like you say, I know better. Um, you can't convince me because I, I just know better. I, I, the experience has told me, shown me. And, and I'll tell you that uh, uh, Laren Thomas is my hero because he has, he has put the stuff out there and has proven through science, you know, what a lot of us have been saying for many years, dispelling these crazy myths, even things things he don't cover like quenching magnetic north and edge packing and i'm talking about edge packing on high carbon steel not brass and bronze and um just you know when you what what all happens when you heat treat a knife and what happens to those carbides and how they're reset and all of that packing you did is going to go away as soon as you thermal cycle it and quench it 
and temperate. I mean, it's 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 really common sense, but I'm I'm just glad that you got somebody out there like that who is a, the son of a legend who became a metallurgist and is putting it out there and giving it to the community. Um, I I love it, and you would think that people would you know educate themselves and and learn some of that, but I. I really like to use a variety of steels, but I do stick to three or four different ones primarily. And, um, you know, it, it, like you said, most end users don't really see the difference in, in particular steels in day to day. Uh, when I did my performance test, and you know how that test is done for the ABS journeyman and Mastersmith test as far as the performance portion. And, uh, you know, you got to cut a free hanging one inch rope and then chop a two by four and a half twice. And then it has to shave and then it has to take a 90 degree bend, which is really a heat treating technique. But the, 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 the point is, if that if I can take a piece of 1084, which is what I use, which is the basic kind of a very forgiving steel and do all of that with it. And it still performs after, you know, all of that abuse. I mean, you're really not going to see much difference unless you're, you know, it, that knife's made, that performance knife is made to do that. It's made to chop and so forth. But um, I can make knives all day long with 1084 and they perform just fine. They'll hold edge and and, uh, and do their job. And it, it comes down to, your big majority of it is edge geometry. I take my edges down, most, all of them are 20 or less, 20 thousandths or less on the edge. And if you do that and then put your secondary based on what it's gonna be used for, and for that particular knife, it was a convex right on the secondary. And um, you, you can't beat it. It performs just fine. Just your basic cheap steel, high carbon steel. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I had Laren on quite a few episodes ago um, because I wanted to talk to him about his new new book uh, about knife steel and history. Um, I thought that that was yeah. really um, it, it was good because Laren largely self um, self researched all of it, and I know that there's there are some um, inconsistencies on timelines or things, but he's a he's building all of that up off of um, a lot of anecdotal information because there wasn't either people were doing stuff at the same time or it wasn't really well documented and, and some people are still not alive and other people are like, well, they were the first to uh, invent it and that might not necessarily be the case. But his, his mind for being able to stitch together the like where we came from in early civilization up to now where we have just incredible knowledge sets around different steels and everything to me is indispensable. And I mean, he's told me more times than I can count that this, that's perpetuating a myth. Like if I say something and he catches it, he'll be like, that's perpetuating a myth. And uh, I, I appreciate it because he's um, very willing to at least differentiate what he uh, knows to be true versus um, conjecture. Um, but but I, I fully agree. A well heat treated, high quality knife, um, you know, is just that, and that's I think what everybody should be looking for first. Not not some 
wizardry, you know, that's a difference between foraging or stock removal or whatever. But, you know, looking at the intrinsic quality of, you know, was it heat treated well? You know, I almost never get questions from people who are using my knives about heat treat. It's just, it's rare even that they'll ask about what the Rockwell hardness is or how it's being ground or anything. Those are things that I feel compelled to talk about, but an end user almost never asks those questions. Well, no, I, I hardly get those anymore. I used to, but it's most of the, I have a lot of repeat clients and a lot of collectors, but um, they, it is, you eventually people will know your your work they know your knives and it, it's kind of mute but I, I i enjoy that too that's why I, I shoot a lot of videos showing the process and explaining what i'm doing and uh, at least what i can with a limited amount of time to in a, in a video um and you know it's just i'm not a pro at anything but i i try to follow procedures and and practices that that are uh well established you know there's some there's a lot of things that we that we're doing today that that are different and um especially quench mediums you know and that's that's one of the things that we're talking about dr laren you know he, he he's he's got it out there and and when it comes to you know your certain engineered quenching oils a lot of people using stuff that this you're not getting the best performance out of your heat treat by using a mediocre quench medium um yes you know so there's a lot of i've got a book i'm sitting here looking at it on my shelf over there from the 80s you know of, of this concoction to quench your knife in yeah it, it gets it hard but now you can there's there's engineered oils for the specific a series of steels and that's what I would prefer to use why not because you you can get the you can maximize the performance and uh, and your customer will appreciate that it'll go a long way yeah that's something um, when I was talking with Steve Schwarzer about um, like cross cross disciplinary knowledge right like taking one um, area of expertise and using it another like you, you're a good example of that because you have this passion for uh, videography and uh, you know setting a a visual narrative and things like that and you incorporate that into your videos right and um, heat treating mediums has been around for a long time because industrially. Um, if anything was heat treated, they had to f find the best way to quench it. And the rock, like my Rockwell hardness tester is probably from the fifties. And I'm sure that it tested, um, a lot of different steels, uh, in a manufacturing setting because those were the specifications that they had to follow. Um, but I know lots of people, um, who have, uh, c not really cared so much about heat treating. Like they'll say, well, if it skates a file, it's fine. And I, that doesn't really work for me. Um, I, I like to be able to test it and understand what its Rockwell is. I like to be able to understand the metallurgy of it and what grain structure looks like. Because, you know, the only way to find out whether you did something right is to <laughs> destroy it, basically, and check those things out. And eventually you get good at um, following the recipes enough to get to a place where you know that what's happening inside of that steel is not catastrophic to its use. Um, but you know, there's so many areas where if you have the knowledge in one specific type of discipline, it, uh, tra it, 
it transfers very well over into the arts and knife making and, and other things like that. And so I, I like to uh, encourage people not to get so stuck up on just doing knives, um, that understanding the world around you is is a very important thing too. Like I mean, for instance, like when I'm looking at uh, some of your frame locks and whatnot, anodizing titanium and whatnot is a is a, another complete avenue uh, of uh, you know uh, chemical and electric um, 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 modification of, of 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 oxides on a surface that you need to be aware of if you want to be able to perform those certain types of things, like whether you're using heat anodization or electrical or whatever, there's an entire like sub genre of uh, embellishments and things that you can do to your blades. If you understand some about electricity, some about heat, some about the metal that you're using and, and can tie all those things in together. Yep. That's a, that's exactly right. You just, you're, but like you said, it's a continual, learning process. I mean, I have, I have never engraved anything. I've done some wire inlay and, and now I'm, I'm trying to get off into the engraving world because I'd really like to learn it, but it is like, it is to be good at it. It takes years of, of practice and develop skill development. And, and, um, while I want to do it, I'm just going to, you know, I'll be tinkering around with it. But I've got a lot of people or a few people that have really impressed me and inspired me. Uh, you take Jerry Fisk, Master Smith Jerry Fisk, and he does his own engraving now. He's not been engraving that long, and his stuff looks beautiful. And um, that that's really inspiring and impressive. You know, when you see somebody that can that can pick it up and go with it, it's just all about putting your mind to it. But it is a for me, it's a, always trying to learn something new and, and uh, stay relevant and stay fresh. Don't get stagnant because you'll, you'll find, at least I do, that you make a lot of the same things over and over and over and you're, you're missing out on things, uh, on growing, you know. And um, that's a lot of the problems with doing customs. <laughs> yeah, no, I... <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that that's a, that's a great point, uh, is just not allowing yourself to stagnate and to, um, go far, like long enough of doing the same thing where you start building this confirmation bias. Like this is, this is the way that I've always done it. And it's the only way to do it. Um, that there's, the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing. And, um, and the more I learn though, the, the more deeply entrenched, in this world of knives I become, I mean, the podcast was like me wanting to be able to talk to people like you and to have conversations like this about just, you know, all of the different components, like what, what makes up knives? It's, well, it's not, yeah, sure. It's the knife, um, that makes up the knife world, but it's really more than that. It's, it's getting lost in the swamp for a few days. It's, um, it's, uh, working in manufacturing or something like that. And, and, seeing other people make knives it's being in world war ii and seeing all the uh, theater knives and everything like that that are around it's um you know it's it's exposure through magazines and everything like those stories are like the driving forces for so many lives in knives and that to me is super interesting and who would have thought um in me just kind of like trying to scratch the surface on what what really kind of makes this knife thing what it is have i um really realized that um 
I don't know that I'll ever know. Um, but it's great to have conversations like this and talk about things because like even in the scope of what we've talked about, I've uh, taken a lot of inspiration and a lot of things that, you know, I'm going to have to chew on for a while and see like, how can I incorporate that mentality into what I do on a day-to-day basis? Yes, sir. I agree with you. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that you, that I wake up with every day. It's, um, What am, what am I going to do that's going to make it easier, better? And, and uh, you know, it's things you have to weigh out in life with anything you do. And, and knife making is just one of them. I totally agree. Well, I know that you got lots of shop stuff to do. And um, <laughs> I, really, I really appreciate the time that you spent uh, sitting with me and, and talking about everything that we have. Um I hope that the uh, you know listeners obviously get something out of that, and I'll make sure to post up all your social media and website contacts and things like that. But you know, if there's ever a situation where um, you need anything from me, um, I'm not that far away. Um, and I again, it's been a humongous honor to talk to you after all this time of using your materials online to educate myself on knives. Wow, man, I appreciate that. You don't know what that means, and uh, I appreciate you allowing me to come on. I really enjoy it, man. Yes, sir. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure. Yes, sir. Well, I hope you uh, get feeling better. I know you was under the weather, and um, we'll we'll uh, be talking later, man. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Good Old Blades podcast. Remember that you are loved, and God bless.